Thankful to the worship team for setting our hearts in motion as we begin our meditation on God's Word today. Today we are going to be back in Joshua uh, in chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Joshua 11. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. These two men at the front will make their way to the back and they'll put one in your hand. So just uh, put your hand up and uh, they'll make sure that you can uh, follow along with us this morning as we have some serious territory to cover as we are venturing not through just one but two chapters this morning in Joshua, you know, I was under the impression when I heard about daylight savings time, uh, I must have misunderstood because I assumed that rather than you guys getting an extra hour of sleep, I got an extra hour to preach. So, um, so we're going to have to cut this in half this morning. Uh, I'm totally kidding, of course, but uh, we do have a lot of territory to to go through this morning as we pick up our study of Joshua from where we left off a few weeks ago and. Uh, today's passage is actually going to bring us to uh, a very fitting strategic end to a major section of Joshua. We've officially, we'll, we will have officially made it to the halfway point, which means that there's still a lot of ground to cover in this book. So if you haven't been here or you simply need a refresher on where we've been, uh, here's kind of the brief summary. Uh, chapters 1 through 4, uh, we see the Israelites, God's chosen people, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after their exodus from uh, the land of Egypt, have finally uh, had the opportunity to enter into the land. The first four chapters of the book are about that official crossing of the river and finally setting foot inside the land that God had promised them for hundreds of years. And over the last several weeks, chapters 5 through 10 is really about the, the taking of the land, the conquest of the land, uh, receiving the land that is rightfully theirs. And we've seen that it's been a little bit of a, a roller coaster ride for the people of Israel, a little bit of uh, some great success and some great failure. Uh, but ultimately, they are on the cusp of taking the land. In chapter 10, we saw the entire southern half of the promised land fall under Israelite control. And today, attention shifts to the north. And by the time we are done this morning, the entire promised land will be under the control of God's chosen people. So that's where we're going this morning as we read together. So I'm going to invite you as we stand and we read from God's Word from Joshua chapter 11 this morning. Uh, again, because we're covering two chapters, we're not going to read the entirety. So we'll uh, mostly read from chapter 11 and uh, jump around just a little bit uh, as we set our minds in motion for what's ahead. But we will pick up in Joshua chapter 11 starting in verse 1. And it reads, When Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard of this... He sent to Joab, king of Medan, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Aksphah, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of the Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and the Naphoth Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites, and the east, and to the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. 
So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misphoroth Maim and eastwards as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until they left, he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all the men who were in it, devoting to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had devoted them, and they did not leave any who breathed. And as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Jump down to verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country and uh, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah and all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashad did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. This is God's word for us to meditate on this morning. You can be seated and we're going to ask for God's blessing on our time as we study together this morning. So you would pray with me. Father, now as we do indeed turn our attention to the study of your word, we ask for your blessing as we seek to unpack it. Uh, Lord, help us to see you in all of your majesty, to understand, Lord, the great uh, blessing it is to be your people, to know the rest uh, of our promised inheritance that you have laid up for us, but help us to see it first and foremost, Lord, in its context here as it related to your people uh, in Joshua's time. Help us to see you in all your glory, Lord. Uh, give us wisdom now, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. According to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in 1969, the Super Bowl was not quite the entertainment spectacle that it is today, 54 years later, uh, but it still was a much-anticipated competition between two quality football programs, or at least it was supposed to be. Uh, that year saw the Baltimore Colts and the New York Jets facing off in uh, only the third Super Bowl. And ironically enough, the, the Colts uh, were favored to win that game by nearly three touchdowns. And if you know nothing of football, just know three touchdowns is a pretty significant margin of victory. Uh, I know that because our leader suffered that big of a defeat on Friday night at the Turkey Bowl. So I, I can attest to how embarrassing that can be. Uh, but this Super Bowl would become well known uh, for other reasons. 
It would become well known for the loudmouth prediction of the quarterback for the New York Jets, a guy by the name of Joe Namath, who three days before the game famously guaranteed that his team would win, even though they were severe underdogs. And three days later, that's exactly what took place, as his team won the game by a score of 16-7. to You know, society gets hyped up when bold predictions come true. Uh, Whenever guarantees or promises are made that actually come to pass, when a baseball player points to the fence before he hits a, a home run and actually does it. And yet, we all understand that there's no solid basis for this. In fact, Namath, uh, it was understood to be, was intoxicated when he made that prediction uh, to reporters who were gathered around him that day. There was no basis for that promise, that guarantee that he was making. And this is where we must see that the guarantees of men are petty compared to the promises of God that we have seen time and time and time again in the book of Joshua. As we think about the promise of victory, the promise of success, we see that culminate today in our passage where we learn that God provides final victory so that his people can rest in their promised inheritance. Uh, That God in his promise and in his power provides the final victory for his people so that they can rest in that which he has promised to them. Unlike petty guarantees made out of a proud spirit or an altered state of mind, God's word reminds us that those who follow God are promised, sure, an ultimate victory in the end. And the battles, uh, the final battles of this great war in Joshua, I think are a great picture for us of God's plan to deliver his people by his power and by his grace. They teach us about God's power, his, his character, and above all, his, his faithfulness. In many ways, these last two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, form a fitting conclusion to this section of Joshua. It feels almost like a summary of everything that we have learned up to this point and has been repeated time and time again for these first 10 chapters. You're going to see things that we've said over and over and over again, and that's by no mistake. So let's walk through these two chapters together before drawing some application at the end. And I'm going to do so once again in four stages. I think there's four major movements that we need to look at in this account. And we're going to begin in verses 1 through 5 with what we're going to call the last stand of God's enemies. The last stand of God's enemies. As I mentioned at the outset, the tension in the narrative is now shifting from the south where Israel has been for the first part of this book, and now it is shifting to the north. And you're going to notice that those opening verses read very similar to what you saw in chapters 9 and chapters 10, right? We see this coalition of forces joining together in an attempt to stop and slow down Israel's conquest of the land, And as in chapter 10, there is a clear leader of this movement, a guy by the name of Jabin, the king of Hazor, who was seen as maybe the the main leader over this northern region. And a quick read of these verses show that this uh, mixed army that he gathers together in the north 
was extremely formidable. In fact, the drawn-out nature of this section is done with that exact purpose in mind. Did you see how long it took to just read through all these forces and everything together? The, The point is it's a slow build to give you the impression that this is an impressive group. Uh, In fact, it culminates by saying they were like the sand on the seashore. It would be pointless to try to even number them. It builds suspense and intensity. The reader wants you to feel the overwhelming odds that are stacked against the Israelites as they come to this part in the book. This is essentially the army to end all wars. But it's not just about their size, it's also about their resources. Did you notice what they have on their side? Verse 4, with very many horses and chariots. Now that might not seem very impressive to us today, but back in that day, that was like the epitome of warfare. To say that you had horses and chariots was like saying uh, you have tanks on your side while the enemy forces have slingshots, right? Not a very fair competition, And so they have incredible size, incredible resources. They have everything working in their favor, except for the fact that they don't have the one true God on their side. And so this vast army gathers together at the waters of Merom in the north to put a stop to all of Israel's successful momentum. And what we see here is that this attempt on their part It's completely unsuccessful. And that is because as we move to verses 6 through 15, we see a decisive victory for God's people. Once again, this battle begins with the Lord speaking to Joshua as he has done time and time again throughout this book. Look what he says. Do not be afraid. Verse 6. Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them over, all of them slain to Israel. Man, again, beginning this great battle, probably the most intimidating one that Israel has come up to so far in the book, and guaranteeing, I will give them into your hands. Notice once again why Israel should not be afraid. How are they going to win this fight? Well, the reality is they aren't going to win the fight. God's going to win the fight. He will give them over to the Israelites. And the stage is set at this point for the biggest and most epic battle in this book. This is like those uh, movies where there's like a, a trilogy and it's this final battle that comes in the final movie and you're ready for this long, drawn out sequence of detail. And if that's what you're expecting, you're sorely disappointed in many ways, aren't you? Because as you look at it, This biggest battle in Joshua is perhaps the most anticlimactic. I mean, think about it. We had the walls of Jericho falling. We had the ambush at Ai. We had the hailstones and the uh, geographic anomalies back in chapter uh, 10, right? We have all these amazing details of these other battles. And now we get to here and look at what it says in verses 7 and 8. So Joshua and all the warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Israel. That's it. (laughs) 
the Lord gave them into the hands of Israel. No stunning detail, no geographic anomalies, nothing but simple deliverance. Total devastation of the armies that Israel is able to strike all of them, leaving none remaining. But also, it wasn't just about total destruction and total devastation of the army, but also notice there's total obedience here. Because the Lord told Joshua that you will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. And notice what we see in verse 9. Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. What's going on here? Well, to hamstring a horse, sorry for those of you who, who like animals here. Um, don't worry, they didn't kill the horses, but they rendered the horses useless. In the same way that a sprinter uh, who pulls their hamstring is really no good off in the race anymore, that's the same idea, to, to cut this tendon on the back of the leg of the horse so that they no longer are useful for their purposes. And to burn the chariots obviously means to burn the chariots, right? They are no longer to be used, and you think to yourself, well, these would be amazing resources for the Israelites to have moving forward. But God wants to remind them that it is not about the strength of their weapons, but about the strength of their faith in the Lord their God. He is the one who has delivered them thus far. And as this story unfolds here, this decisive victory for God's people, we see in verses 10 through 13 how they move on to the, the judgment and the destruction of the city of Hazor, again, who is this lead city in this region. And Hazor faces a fate very similar to that of Jericho and Ai, the only other cities in the entire promised land that were burned as a sign of God's judgment against them. Notice they didn't do that to the other cities, and that's because the Lord wanted these other cities for the Israelites to have a place to live, a place to inhabit once they indeed had possession of the land. But Hazor does not face that type of grace, but rather is burned to the ground. And by the time we get to verses 14 and 15 of this section, we see here again just this amazing provision and completion of this conquest. Uh, all the spoil of these cities, their livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. That's the Lord's grace providing for them now that they are in control of this land. And I love the summary there, verse 15. Just as the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. This is victory that is decisive in every sense of the word. And that leads us then to verses 16 to 23, where we want to see the finishing touches that are put on God's mission. The finishing touches that are put on God's mission here. And this section begins with a summation of all that Joshua and Israel had, had conquered. Verse 16, Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all of the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, the lowland, and the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland. Again, just showing the vast scope of land that Israel has now taken possession of. And to be clear, this does not mean that the job was complete. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. The job is not yet over. 
while it's fair to say that Israel had conquered the land, that was primarily in the sense that they had control and dominion over it, but there are still enemy forces that exist. There are still people that they are called to drive out to, to really fully possess the land the way that they are called to. I like the way that one uh, commentator compared it. He said it's like the, the German conquest of France in World War II where they defeated uh, French forces and occupied most of the land, but that does not mean that they eliminated all the French people or that every French citizen became German, right? So there's still work that needs to be done on Israel's part, but as a whole, the land is under their control, there's still work to be done, as we'll see moving forward. And to be clear, this work has taken much longer than we think. Look at verse 18 for a moment. It says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. You know, it's, it's very tempting for us to think that this has been a really quick conquest mission by the Israelites. After all, we've probably covered about seven chapters over the course of seven weeks and we're tempted to think to ourselves that this went really quickly. And the reality is it was probably several years, in fact. By the time we learn in chapter 14 about Caleb, how old Caleb is by the time that they're dividing up the land. I mean, this has probably been several years that they've been doing this. Five to seven years, perhaps. And it's a reminder to us that this work that God had called them to, though great, though powerful, though quick at times, was really a slow and steady faith that was on display as the people took control of the land. Now we must draw our attention real quick to the blunt summary in verse 20. Notice what it says here. This is a helpful summary, but it says this, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that being the, the hearts of the Canaanites, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. It's a pretty blunt statement, isn't it? What exactly is this verse telling us here? And I, I think by reading this, we're tempted to draw certain conclusions if we don't carefully consider the full picture of God's word. Remember that it's been noted numerous times in the book of Joshua where the people of the land, the Canaanites, had heard the reports of what Israel had done. They had heard of Israel's God. They had heard of all that he had done to the kings of the land and how he had delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh in Exodus, right? They've heard these things and yet for all of them, with the exception of just a few that we've seen in this story, They've done nothing but rebelled even further. We've seen a few exceptions like the faith of a woman named Rahab in chapter 2 who understood this true God, who expressed genuine faith in this God. We saw the deception of the Gibeonites who, though they weren't maybe putting their faith in Yahweh, they also knew they didn't want to be destroyed and so they were willing to go to great lengths to do something about it. But for the rest, for decades, they have resisted God by hardening their own hearts, even though they have heard of who this God is and what he is capable of doing. They've white-knuckled it, and they've resisted it even further. This is persistent defiance marked by gross adherence to abominable sins, as we saw in Deuteronomy. These people buckled down even further into their way of life. 
And the time now for their destruction has arrived. Remember when God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 about the land that he and his uh, descendants would one day inherit. He told them, he told Abraham then that the time of the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. But now that time has come. Hundreds of years later, that time has come. God's final hardening of them was warranted and used to fulfill the promise that he had made long ago. Now, before the curtain drops on this chapter, there's one last matter that must be attended to. And I love that God draws attention to it this way. Look at verses 21 and 23. Because it talks of how Joshua at that time cut off the Anakim from the hill country. And you may ask yourself, who or what are the Anakim? Who are these people? Well, according to Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 9, they were what we would call hulks of men. They were, they were essentially giants, guys who were abnormally bigger, taller, stronger than most men. But why is it significant that this short encounter is placed right at the end of the conquest narrative? Well, think about it for just a moment. Why did Israel fail to go into the land nearly 40 years earlier? Do you remember? You remember the report of the spies? In Numbers 13, 28, and 33, they said, We saw the sons of Anak there, the, the Anakim. And we are like grasshoppers compared to them. There's no way we can beat them. It was that very act of unbelief, that lack of trust in the Lord to provide and to deliver them into the land that sent them into 40 years of punishment. Isn't it just like God to set up the final conquest in this way? The final foe needing to be defeated was the very one that destroyed their faith and caused the first generation to rebel 40 years earlier. I love that that's how it's drawn up here. And this time, they don't waver. They do exactly what the Lord calls them to do. And they drive these men out of the region. Notice it says that they drive them out and there was none, verse 22, of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ashad did some remain. By the way, that should sound familiar to you because we're going to face one of those later on in Scripture. A guy from the land of Gath named Goliath, right? So if you ever wonder the history, that's the connection there. But that leads us to the grand summary of verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. But before we wrap up on this, there's one more thing we have to consider and that's chapter 12. Chapter 12, where we see finally a powerful reminder of God's faithfulness on display. I love the way that Dale Ralph Davis says this, because if you were to look at chapter 12 real quickly, you would notice it doesn't exactly inspire a whole lot of devotional warmth. Not many of you would choose chapter 12 to sit down with your coffee in this nice fall weather and say, you know what, I'm just going to meditate on Joshua 12 today. 
these list of kings that were conquered in the promised land, right? It doesn't exactly inspire a lot of devotional warmth, but before you were quick to turn the page and jump to chapter 13, if you're a good Bible student, you know you need to ask the question, why is it here? What purpose does it serve? I mean, why not just jump from conquering the land to dividing the land? After all, verse 23 of chapter 11 seems to set it up that way pretty well, doesn't it? But a close examination of this chapter would show a record of God's great power on display for his people. It's it's an appendix of sorts included to remind Israel how they got to this point, beginning all the way back with Moses to where they are now. It is a record of God's faithfulness and his power on display. We see in verses 1 through 6 a record that first recounts the victories experienced under Moses and land across the river to the east in the what was called the Transjordan region. All these kings that were conquered under Moses, their first leader, 40 years earlier. And the record now recounts in verses, 20, uh, verses 7 to 23, uh, almost like a checklist of sorts of the kings that were conquered in the land of, uh, in, inside the land to the west. Right, It reads very much like a checklist, right? King of Eglon, check, I got one of those. King of Hormah, check, got one of those. On and on it goes through this whole list. By the time you get to verse 24, 31 kings. That's an incredible record there. 31 kings. I mean, if Joshua was smart, he would open up a Baskin Robbins and he would name a flavor after every king he conquered, right? You want yourself a scoop of hazel or hazelnut? We got it. Some macadam mint? Absolutely, we got it. But again, this serves as a beautiful ending to the section that you cannot rush past. But finally, the stage is set for the people to settle into the land that they had been promised hundreds of years earlier which is where we're going to go in the coming weeks. But we need to look back on this and think about all that the Lord has for us to think about this morning. So I want to draw some points to ponder as we do so here. And I want to begin by thinking about this first, that victory comes from faith in God's power, not trusting your own sufficiency. And again, this is one of those themes that we've, we've kind of come back to time and time again in this study. These chapters remind us that victory truly belongs to Yahweh. Very early in this story, their trust was tested merely by what they were up against, these chariots and these horses. But as the verse on the cover of your worship folder reminds us this morning that some may trust in chariots, some may trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That was Israel's hope, and notice how God called them to to not use these items, these, these horses and these chariots, but to burn them, to get rid of them, lest they, like the Canaanites, began to trust in their own strength and their own sufficiency. He says, remove them from your midst. Remind yourselves constantly that it was the Lord who got you to this point, and it is the Lord who will go with you moving forward. As we've learned throughout this series, God wants us to boast in our weaknesses so that we might make much of his power, right? That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9 again, that we boast in our weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon us. In fact, this is the very heart of the gospel of salvation to begin with. 
Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 9 that you were saved not because of your works so that no one can boast. Right, Christian, I'm going to tell you something very blunt this morning. None of you are very impressive. Okay, I hope that's good for your morale today. None of you are impressive. And that's why God works through you despite your weaknesses. And so we as his followers, as those who seek to follow God by faith, want to show ourselves dependent upon him in the daily fight, the daily fight against sin, the daily fight against suffering, the things that are in our life. We show ourselves dependent upon the Lord in his power, not in our own sufficiency. We echo the cry of, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Secondly, faithfulness is a long, grueling journey. Again, I draw you back to the simplicity of verse 18 from chapter 11, that Joshua made war a long time against those kings. Again, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that all of this happened in a day because it takes us like five minutes to read. But I don't want us to, I don't want us to over-spiritualize this verse, but I also want to see it in light of everything that God's people are being called to do here. It's so easy to take the short view of spiritual growth, to think we just want the quick fixes, or become discouraged when we don't grow or mature as much or as quickly as we would like to. This verse reminds us that the work that Joshua and Israel gave themselves to was a long, grueling task. God's desire for us as his people is to see and embrace the long view We see that throughout Scripture. We are compared to running a race. We are compared to farmers who are plowing a field. These are long, grueling tasks. Being a follower of God looks like being faithful in the day-to-day battle of faith. Reading, praying, fighting sin, sharing the gospel. That's why Paul reminds the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15 to remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their work in the Lord is not in vain. So as God's people, we must take the long view of things, not think that we're going to be spiritually mature all at once, but take the long perspective of growing in the Lord. Third, God keeps his word by delivering on his promises Again, we see this in the wonderful summary of verse 23 that leads into chapter 12. Chapter 12 serves as a bridge between chapters 11 and the conquest of the land and chapter 13, the beginning of the dividing up of the land. But in many ways, it's not so much of a bridge as it is a speed bump in some ways, isn't it? Because we don't want to be quick to rush from done with war to dividing up the land. It's a reminder to slow down and to remember All that God has done for you. We've come to that theme time and time again throughout this book. Remember? That we need to be quick to slow down sometimes. To reflect on God's goodness. God's grace in our lives. This chapter and the ones uh, to come are really poster chapters for that famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Right? How often are you quick to slow down and remember the ways that God has been faithful to you, dear Christian? Joshua took the whole land just as God had promised to Moses and to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham. That's hundreds of years of God's faithfulness on display. It's God's way of keeping by giving. 
You see, you holding your hands this morning a book that is filled with the promises of God that are reserved for us, that we can bank on, that we can know are true because God has proven himself faithful time and time again. When God says he'll do something, you better believe that he will indeed do it. Joshua reminds us time and time again why God can be trusted and he is eager to give to his people the inheritance that he has promised to them. Fourth, this morning, the most obedient followers make the best spiritual leaders. The most obedient followers make the best spiritual leaders. You know, while Joshua has been a central character in this book, he's been far from the center character of the book. Uh, the book has not been centered around Joshua the way some people often make the book of Joshua out to be, as if we need to look to him for all the moral examples. And yet, I will say at this point, it would be a mistake to overlook Joshua in these chapters. Because what you see with Joshua is what makes a great leader of God's flock. It is not rugged manliness. It is not brilliant military strategy it is something far more simple and yet far more challenging at the same time. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. Verse 12, all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 15, just as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. Verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and to receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel. Do you see the repeated theme there? Just as the Lord told Joshua to do, Joshua did. Joshua learned the importance of following God's lead in faith by obeying his word. That's not impressive by worldly standards, but boy is it prioritized by God. That's why spiritual leaders in the Bible are called to be men of character because it demonstrates obedience to God which will help them as they seek to lead others to do likewise. Faithful following makes great spiritual leadership. Fifth, those who harden their hearts will face God's wrath. We saw this back in verse 20, but if you're observant, you notice that the language is a bit different here. I'm saying those who harden their heart will face God's wrath. This verse says that God hardened their heart, so which is it? And the answer is yes, it is both. This verse, even though it does say God hardened their heart, this is what is sometimes referred to as uh, a judicial hardening by God. As we discussed earlier, that day of grace for the Canaanites has passed. They have had more than adequate time to respond to God, but their own hearts would not do so. 
And as such, God gives them up according to like what Romans 1 says, gives them up to their evil ways. But still, there is a warning in this for you who are here today, similar to what God gave in Psalm 95 when he rebuked the people in the wilderness for rebelling against him. Even though they had seen his mighty works on display, they hardened their hearts even against God when they had seen him do mighty things, when they had heard him do mighty things. That first generation was known for their stubbornness and in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13, which kind of picks up on that generation, it reminds us here that you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it's a warning that none of you would do so. But understanding for those who do, who harden their heart, even though they see God's word, even though they hear it week after week and understand who this God is that has revealed himself. But those who continue to resist that will one day face God's judgment. He is long-suffering. He is patient. But there comes a day, just like in verse 20, where that will be exhausted and judgment will come. The warning for you here today is that like the Canaanites in the first generation of Israelites, that you would not do the same, that you would not hear and behold God's authority and yet refuse to submit to it. Because those who do so will find no rest. But for those who do trust in God's plan for deliverance, we see that perfect and final rest has been given in Christ Jesus. I want to invite the band forward as we prepare our time for communion here. I think this point really stands out from Joshua this morning. In verse 23, we saw how God uh, provides a summary of the first half of the entire book. Something beautiful that's found in the words that the land had rest from war. That though there was still work to be done and parts of the land to subdue, the hardest work had been accomplished. The people could take a deep breath and enjoy what was now rightfully theirs. And yet we must recognize that this physical rest from war, though great, was not perfect and final. In fact, this is what the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 verses 8 through 10 reminds us of. Uh, that there was not actually a final rest for these people. Uh, the writer actually points to a greater rest that is afforded to those who follow God. A perfect and final rest that ceases not from the physical labors of war, but from the spiritual labors of eternity. How is that possible? As one of my professors from seminary puts it, he says, Joshua gave physical rest that was temporary. Our heavenly Joshua, Jesus, has given us a spiritual rest that is eternal Remember, Joshua's name in the Old Testament is the same name that is carried over to the New Testament for Joshua, which is Jesus. And we see this later in Hebrews 9.15 that Jesus is now the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive their promised eternal inheritance. The sacrificial death of Jesus inaugurated a new covenant that offers perfect and final rest to all who enter by faith in him. After all, it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will do what? I will give you rest. No more striving, no more self sufficiency. 
And yet we recognize that faith is still a battle until the day the Lord calls us home and we enter into that final promised inheritance. It's the idea that this rest is kind of a, a both already experienced and some that is still yet to be fully experienced. And yet because of our salvation, Ephesians 1 reminds us that when you believed in Christ and were sealed with his Holy Spirit, you were given the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire the final possession of it. We're going to talk more about that theme of inheritance in the coming weeks in the Christian life. But hopefully you're beginning to see the beauty of what we have seen today, that Jesus has secured for you the rest that you so desperately need. And for those of you who have come to him, you understand this rest. You have experienced this gentle and lowly nature of Jesus as your Savior. You have felt that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that is because you no longer carry the weight of sin and the fear of judgment. So when we gather as a church in observance of communion, it is a time for us to remember, but also celebrate the joy of this rest that has been given to us in Christ. We acknowledge the common union we share because of the blood of the new covenant, the blood that Jesus Christ shed in order to purchase that inheritance for us, though none of us are worthy. So if you have entered that rest by putting your faith in Jesus, I'm going to ask you to prepare those elements that you received on your way in this morning. You'll notice that one side of your uh, cup there has the, the bread, the other part has the juice. For those of you who have not put your faith in Christ, who have not entered into that rest that we've talked about this morning, this is a chance for you to observe, to see, and to see what peace the Lord has given to those who have entered into the rest that comes through Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to take that little wafer that's inside that cup there. I want to remind you that this piece of bread, though small in size, serves as a big reminder to us of the body of Jesus that was broken, mocked, shamed, despised, all for our sin. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, in verses, sorry, verses, I'm on the wrong page, chapter 11, sorry, <laughs> verses 23 and 24, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's all do this together. I encourage you then to peel back the, the lid there that exposes that juice. Again, small little cup here, a meager attempt to remind us of the blood of this new covenant that we just talk of. The blood that was required for the purchase of our salvation that allowed us to be able to enter into the rest that is afforded to us in Christ. The blood of a perfect spotless substitute which Jesus so graciously provided on our behalf. And so I read again from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Lord, 
Well, I'm thankful this morning for the rest that we have been afforded in Christ Jesus. And this passage reminds us here that communion actually is an expression of declaring the Lord's death until the day he returns, until the day that we enter into that final rest perfectly with him forever. And we're going to sing of that now. And as we do, I encourage you to listen and read closely to the lyrics of the song that we sing here because it clearly speaks of the joy that will culminate one day when Christ returns for his people. So let's sing of that now. <laughs> 